From KVMR and in partnership with Freed, this is Disability Rep. The fusion of science and public policy and really just the, the grassroots human experiences of disease, all need to come together um, as we tell this larger story of um, the pandemic um, and this time in human history and the future of the disability rights movement. Today, a conversation with Ryan Pryor on long COVID and how patients took the lead in identifying the disease and advocating for answers. History books um, will view this as an important moment in, in how um, patients have taken control of narrative, very similar to ways that this was done by ACT UP. That's all coming up on Disability Rap. Stay tuned. Welcome to Disability Rap. I'm Carly Pacheco. As the death toll from COVID-19 quickly rose throughout the United States and around the world in early 2020, many health officials, politicians, and media personalities had one clear message about those who contracted COVID-19. For those who didn't die from the infection, it would be a simple respiratory illness and patients would fully recover in a matter of weeks. But for millions of people around the world, they didn't fully recover after contracting SARS-CoV-2. Their symptoms lasted for months or years, often with no signs of easing up. This was not well understood by the medical community, and so it was patients who banded together, often online, to support each other and raise awareness of a condition that they themselves termed long COVID. This is the subject of a new book by our guest today, Ryan Pryor. In The Long Haul, Solving the Puzzle of the Pandemic's Long Haulers and How They Are Changing Healthcare Forever, Ryan documents the journey that people with long COVID embarked on to advocate for recognition and understanding of this new condition in the medical community. He also shows how that advocacy was influenced heavily by those with another condition called myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome or MECFS. Writing from personal experience as someone who developed ME-CFS in high school, Ryan presents the similarities between ME and long COVID and how they're both generally misunderstood by the medical profession and how patients themselves were often on the front lines of understanding their own conditions and educating their doctors. He also connects these patient-led movements to the disability rights movement of the 1970s and 80s and continuing today and encourages the movements to unite around common goals. Ryan is currently a journalist in residence at the Century Foundation. He's been a health and science writer for CNN since 2015 and has also written for The Guardian, The Daily Beast, USA Today, Stat News, and Business Insider. Our co-host, Carl Sigmund, spoke with Ryan last week. Well, Ryan Pryor. Welcome to Disability Rap. I won't begin by asking I want to begin by asking you to briefly share your own story with MECFS. What is it? Tell us and tell us about your journey. Except this new 
To accept this new condition you had. The story of, of my book about long COVID and um, uh, this advancements of the disability rights movement past the pandemic begins in October 22nd, 2006, when I was um, a junior in high school. Um, I, came, I was a, a cross-country runner and a soccer player. I was uh, 17 years old. I came home from school um, and slept for uh, about 16 hours straight and did, did that again and again and again, um, and ultimately needed to, to drop out of high school altogether. Um, there was I did not have a diagnosis, but I was being um, treated at the time for mononucleosis, which is a, um, presents with debilitating fatigue and is a common uh, condition among uh, teenagers. But I never got better in the in the in the, um, the way that others do within about four weeks or so. And I went. We went to. Um, about 16 different doctors for uh, neurology, rheumatology, infectious disease, uh, endocrinology, uh, on down the list, and um, ultimately received this diagnosis of, of chronic fatigue syndrome, which is also called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis means um, a painful uh, inflammation of the brain and the spinal cord. So there was a, it was a disease that um, in the wake of a viral infection that had affected my nervous system and my immune system. And uh, I produced a documentary film about this disease um, after I graduated from college, and then I, uh, as a reporter for CNN, frequently wrote stories about MECFS and um, a lot of the cutting-edge science uh, in molecular biology to try to um, understand uh, where it comes from and how, how to treat it and hopefully how to cure it and really ultimately how to pre pre prevent it from occurring in the first place. Um, but we know this type of disease occurs after um, a range of different infections, which could be um, Lyme disease, a bacteria that causes Lyme disease, or a, a variety of viruses from Ebola to Epstein-Barr to, to now SARS-CoV-2. So when the pandemic began in, in early 2020, uh, it was clear to me that this was going to constitute um, a mass disabling event for um, probably tens of millions of people, just like what I had experienced um, in high school. And I'm fortunate to be able to have recovered, to be able, being able to work full time and to ha have a voice writing for um, a lot of national or international news outlets. And so I wanted to, to lend my um, voice and expertise uh, to interview a lot of the cutting edge scientists and a lot of these phenomenal people who are changing the world. And um, so that that was the other of this book um, and a lot of the of the work now with the Century Foundation. There is this pivotal moment in the book. March eleventh, two thousand twenty. On the night that President Trump is about to announce the national emergency for COVID, I want to ask you. I want to ask you two questions. One. One. What was going through your What was going through your head? In 
and then to what would you not hear from our official what were you not hearing from our officials and politicians about your condition? And how it might be impacted by this new infectious disease? What was... Um alarming to me personally, um, separate from my, my journal opinions as, as a producer or as a, uh, a journalist, was that um, we were hearing a lot of rhetoric around uh, this, this being a condition that would last for a week or two in most people. And it, you know, it was probably going to kill um, what we thought would be about 1% of the people who, who got COVID. Um, and then for others, they would get sick for a little while and then it would get better. Um, but my experience um, dating back to uh, high school was that I had developed a post-viral syndrome and had never really fully recovered. Um, although I was, I would say most of recovered and I was lucky to have, um, gotten to where I was with, with NECFS, but I was, had been involved in the advocacy movement for so many years that I knew that, um, just the nature of human biology and the nature of how viruses affect us is that these post-viral syndromes, um, almost always develop and probably about 10% of the people who, who um, get sick. And this is a part of the disability world that oftentimes doesn't get highlighted. And me being immune compromised and just knowing so many other people um, through advocacy, uh, not just around NECFS, but around uh, cancer and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and people with a lot of different uh, diseases um, and disabilities who were immune compromised, I was incredibly worried about what um, what was going to unfold for me, and I was also worried about the tens of millions of people around the world who were um, going to get COVID, going to survive it, but then who were going to be left with these long-term effects that um, our medical system was not prepared to um, address. Um, and so there wasn't any rhetoric at the time. You know, and in the book I highlight. Um, some speeches from um, President Trump and uh, Vice President Pence, but that um, you could use, you could have those same speeches from a whole bunch of different public health officials and, and local officials that these long-term effects that would become long COVID were simply not um, known by the, the mainstream medicine at the time. And that was where um, I knew that um, a lot of my reporting needed to go. Uh, and so when I started um you know, working from home as, as a features writer for CNN and, and on the science team, um, I made a, a point as quickly as possible to start um, reporting on the, the human side of the pandemic and the, these long-term effects that um, uh, by April or May, um, there have been people who've been sick for two months, three months, and um, I was, um, you know, dedicated myself to lifting up those voices in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in December of 2020, you get COVID again. What was going through your mind? 
when you tested positive. Given that you had written almost a year, reporting on these cases, what went through your head when you tested positive? And then on a personal level, what was COVID like for you? In December 2020, at that point, we were probably about nine months um, or so into the pandemic. Um, and I've interviewed probably more than a dozen uh, COVID long haulers um, and read reports of you know, dozens more. Um, and I've been working on um, a number of different stories and have been interviewing scientists um, about, about all aspects of COVID. But um, I had a special interest, of course, in, in the long-term um, disabling effects that um, so many people are having. So when I first got um, COVID, um, it was around Christmas Eve of 2020. And um, I uh, had written a book proposal, and we, my agent and I had circulated that to publishers, um, mostly in New York City. And we had an offer from um, the publisher that we were thinking about going with. And I um, made a comment to the, my agent. I was like, oh, this is going to be so good for the book. I just got COVID. Um, I can bring some of my own personal experiences into it. And she wrote back and said, you know, this, this, this isn't good at all. Like, you know, you, this could be really, really serious for you. Unfortunately, it did end up being really, really serious. And it really was probably the biggest threat to me being able to write the book in the first place was the fact that I got sick with COVID and um, we had to delay signing the book contract for um, a couple months because I was, honestly, I was too sick to be able to have a, a phone call with, with the editor um, to, to you know, finalize the contract. Uh, I was um, experiencing a lot of the severe, severe fatigue and brain fog and post-exertion malaise um, and headaches and um, overall um, dysautonomic system symptoms, these, these um, inability to regulate um, you know, sleep cycles and, and the like. Um, I was experiencing exactly what some of the other COVID long haulers were, were facing. And a lot of my um, reporting at the time and what most of what was available, you know, showed that long COVID was, was a, a significant disease that lasted for uh, months and months and months and that there weren't really any, any great treatments. Um, so I was, at the, I was sort of living the story and I um, make my living uh, in the written word, the um, reading complex, new, uh, complex uh, scientific studies, uh, interviewing a lot of uh, medical professors, um, and interviewing lots of lots of patients and lots of just you know, people across the spectrum of, of whatever is going on um, in the news cycle. Um, so I have to read and write constantly, and um, what happened. In particular, with me, um, I, w I had a very hard time um, sitting up straight um, and went, went on short-term disability. I had a very hard time processing any information of any kind, and it was incredibly uh, horrifying to me that um, 
I might lose the ability to read and write, at least to read and write complex things about um, major national news topics and being able to do that on deadline. And I worried that I was going to lose um, my career altogether because I knew how bad it had been in high school for me. And I knew how bad it was for people with NECFS and how bad it was for everyone dealing with long COVID. But I think um, one just really important point to make here is that the, um, the fusion of science and public policy and really just the, the grassroots human experiences of disease all need to come together um, as we tell this larger story of um, the pandemic um, and this time in human history and the future of the disability rights movement. But the, the voices of people who are living out um, the condition day to day are the ones that um, need to be centered and are the ones that I think are ultimately going to help affect the, the political change that can lead to um, more science being done on this condition and then hopefully uh, leading toward a, a cure. Um, you and you chronicle in the book. This group on the social media platform Slack. Called the body politic. And you say it was a critical place for patients to come together. Can you tell us a bit about that? And the power that they gained by coming together? Sort of the most direct ways to get into this story about long COVID is to tell the story of the um, group of patients who first um, noticed it and, and named it and ultimately started researching it really in the first couple months of the pandemic. And so in, in this book, I tell a story of um, Fiona Lowenstein, who was the, um, the founder of this group called The Body Politic, um, that had really been created as a um, feminist health collective before the pandemic um, for a bunch of different purposes that were you know, totally not COVID-related. But um, Fiona gets sick with um, COVID and, and stays sick for um, weeks afterwards. And notices that a lot of other people are experiencing the same thing. So they start a, a group on WhatsApp at first and are just getting hundreds, if not thousands of people trying to join this WhatsApp group to discuss the lingering symptoms that they are, are confused by, befuddled by, and don't really understand. And um, from there, they, they migrate that group over the Slack after Fiona um, publishes a, a second op-ed in the New York Times that galvanizes a lot of attention. Um, it was about a month into the pandemic and people um, who've gotten sick in that, that very first wave and aren't getting better and are desperate for answers, they all um, funnel in into this, this 
Slack group. And so there's thousands of people joining the Slack group um, called the, you know, the Body Politic um, basically overnight. So you've got this huge pool of COVID long haulers. Basically, before you know, the word COVID long hauler has even really appeared much in the national media, they're, they're all um, coalescing in this, uh, in this online space. And it's really important that this is, this is all occurring in real time uh, using social media. So this, this would have never happened in the, in the 1980s so quickly. But there are all these people with the same common human experience who are struggling for answers. And many of them have incredible um, expertise in public policy or neuroscience or um, data, you know, our data scientists uh, or experts in artificial intelligence. And so they're seeing that all these people are posting all these useful um, pieces of information. Um, and they, so they, they create a survey and um, to, to organize and coalesce all this information all in one place. And that uh, survey becomes um, part of what's, what's called the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. And this, this is um, a group that still exists, you know, is, is actually now well, very well-funded um, years later. And, uh, but the, the emerging moment here that the, uh, it's patients who identify the disease, name the disease, and they produce this first research. And um, that research gets recognized by the National Institutes of Health, by the CDC, uh, by the UK Parliament, and many different countries all around the world are all looking to this patient-led group to explain to them what, what uh, long COVID is because they're getting all of the first-hand information, uh, anecdotal and subjective, and they're translating that into um, rigorous data that is objective that can be used for policymakers um, in, in, in any government and any scientific uh, research agency. So what they achieve here is um, what many experts consider to be um, a cutting-edge, pioneering, historic achievement by um, dis- you know, patient-led researchers who are really um, the, the newest generation of disability activists. And so I think um, what we will see, uh, what history books um, will view this as a, an important moment in, in how um, patients have taken control of the narrative, very similar to ways that this was done by ACT UP during the, you know, the most previous significant um, epidemic, which was, which was the HIV AIDS epidemic a uh, generation before, this new generation of, of health activists during this, this new uh, pandemic um, has shown a new way of doing science. And I think this will be historic, not just for um, you know, you know, political history, but really for scientific history about the nature of what research is and how we can include people with lived experience uh, in the research process. What can our movement the disability rights movement learn from the ME movement and now the growing group of people with long COVID. There's a number of things that um, the MECFS movement uh, and the long COVID movement can learn from the disability rights movement. And there's a number of things that the disability rights movement can then uh, naturally draw on from the, the recent occurrences and um, you know, pioneering of a, a science 
and um, the overall like identities of of this new group, uh, COVID long haulers. One of the things I think that's that's really important is that there's um, has always been this group of uh, people with these invisible disabilities, um, which which could be MECFS or chronic Lyme or or long COVID. Um, it could be fibromyalgia or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, or POTS, you know, many more that I'm not listing here, that all of these are diseases that, may, that the person might not um, be in a wheelchair or may, may not present as being obviously uh, disabled visually, but the person um, is dealing with a, a, a disease that prevent, prevents them from living uh, what, what you know, I consider a normal life. It prevents them from uh, being able to work full time or being able to um, access medical care or being able to care for their children or to be able to um, play sports or travel or um, any of these other activities of life. And so the invisible disabilities um, are now being uh, thrust into the spotlight in a way that they have never been before. So when we talk about this as a, um, a mass disabling event, this, this, this new um, group of millions of COVID long haulers who ought to be um, welcomed with, with open arms into the disability rights community because people um, have fought for a generation or for, for generations for, for disability rights in that um, in the same way that um, all of human rights matter, which would be you know, civil rights or women's rights or gay rights, that disability rights are, are a key pillar of, of the human rights um, agenda. And this number of new COVID long haulers, um, I, I, in my opinion, injects new power into the disability rights movement in a way that um, would not have been seen before. So um, Judy Human is largely believed to be like sort of the mother of the um, disability rights movement. Um, she is a post-polio survivor. Um, and then, um, so in the 1950s, polio was kind of the, the most serious uh, infectious disease. And um, Judy and a number of people with, with post-polio syndrome uh, were pioneers of the disability rights movement. And so we skip forward, then go to the HIV um, movement in the 1980s, and now this, this new movement around COVID long haulers in the, in the 2020s. But with each new generation of, of epidemic and pandemic, uh, you have a, a, a pandemic of, I'll call it a pandemic after the pandemic, so the survivors who live with the long-term effects of, of that infection. And as we think about public health and then we think about you know, pandemic re resilience as a, not just as a, as a human rights um, uh, argument, but really as a national security argument that we really need to have policies in place to deal with the mass assailing effects of, of these d diseases, that this um, also can be used as a way to advance uh, legal rights and human rights and um, a broader policy agenda around uh, disability that one in about one in four people uh, experience uh, a disability, live with a disability every day. And also from there, you can, you can see that um, every one of those people has family members who may not be disabled themselves, but who end up being directly affected by disability, which is all to say that disability is a um, universal part of the human experience. We will all be disabled at some point in our lives. Maybe if we're not um, long-term disabled, we'll certainly be short-term dis disabled. And how we think about the human experience of, of how we reckon with suffering and how we reckon with um, the fragility of the fact that our bodies are 
going to decay and die sooner or later. And we are going to live with um, a set of human experiences that might um, lend insight into the rest of how uh, society operates. So I think when we, when we, talk, we think about it in these universal terms about the nature of suffering and the nature of, of human rights, uh, COVID long haulers are um, a pivotal part of that story. One of the most important points here uh, in this post-pandemic world um, that we're basically entering into is that um, disabled workforce participation greatly increased during the pandemic because remote work options were so much more common. Everybody was working from home. And um, as we enter into a new world in which we want to make um, it more accessible and equitable um, and empathetic for everyone, remote work is one of the easiest and best ways to use technology to uh, enable um, a much larger amount of the population to participate in the culture um, and have their voices heard. That was Carl's interview with CNN reporter Ryan Pryor, currently a journalist in residence at the Century Foundation. His new book is called The Long Haul, Solving the Puzzle of the Pandemic's Long Haulers and How They Are Changing Healthcare Forever. And that does it for the show. Disability Wrap is produced and edited by Carl Sigmund. Courtney Williams is our production assistant. You can go to our website, disabilityrap.org, to listen to past shows, read transcripts, and subscribe to the Disability Wrap podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast by searching Disability Wrap on any of the major podcast platforms. We're brought to you by KVMR in partnership with Freed, and we're distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Carly Pacheco for another edition of Disability Wrap. Disability Wrap.